I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks with me, Christian Chiller, back after a little bit of a holiday. I was in Austin. I spent most of my time in Cambridge, actually. Harvard and MIT area. Very nice area, actually. And Harvard was very pretty. MIT gave me this kind of feeling of, of, of awe, actually. You know, probably the same at Stanford. Just one of these places where you know so many things have been invented and discovered and etc, etc. It didn't look as pretty as Harvard, but uh, it had more impact on me. And I felt slightly nerdy and nervous. But enough of that. I am back with a, another interview with Loris of Sistig. Sistig are another company in the cloud container asset infrastructure security and observability ecosystem, but have actually been around it for some time. So bring a different perspective to what has increasingly become a busy space, but they have been there since the very early days. So we talk about all sorts of things around their journey and the journey of that ecosystem. But first, I am going to start with a few links. I've got quite a few from Wired <laughs> for some reason today. I think I resubscribed to the newsletter, so that might be why. But hey, it's good to know that Wired is still ticking along, putting out uh, good quality content anyway. And this is something from Carrie McCannon about the GitHub black market that helps coders cheat the popularity contest. This actually relates very nicely. It's a shame it didn't come out two weeks ago. Back to my interview with uh, Donna on the last episode from the Chaos Project about metrics and how GitHub metrics are not particularly reliable. Or to be precise, GitHub vanity metrics like forks and pull requests and likes and stars and things like that. This is gamed way more than you might think. There's literally a website called buygithub.com where people, I don't know who would do this, but I guess people do, can pay mostly crypto tokens, unsurprisingly, to get stars on uh, projects. And $6 can get you 50. I don't know if, I, I, don't, I find it hard to know if that's worth it. $6 seems kind of high for 50 stars. And how do they do it? Is it with people or is it automated? I'm not sure, but this whole, and it's part of a whole wider black market of online engagement. She also mentions upvotes on Product Hunt, followers and views on Kaggle, and all sorts of things. And I think where this really relates is that for years, many people, including myself, have been telling people, you know, you need to have a community profile, an open source profile, that kind of thing. And as everybody does that, how do you stand out? Well, you have to have a better looking profile. So is it worth you paying to have a better looking profile? And if everybody now has a better looking profile, what's next, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard many people saying that now these online profiles that used to differentiate you from everybody else also are not enough anymore. So what is next, I suppose, is the, the conversation. And this article really digs into how bad it's actually become. <laughs> the one it mentions here, cryptocurrency, it seems to be unfortunate. Okay, cash, or cash, I don't know, it was the worst offender. 97% of its 759 stars, which actually isn't a tremendous amount, were flagged as fake. 
And then Apache Airflow, a much better established project, 1.6% of 29,435 stars. So there seems to be a little bit of a, a, a sweet number, maybe. When it's very low to when it's very low or very high, maybe it's more reliable. When it's in the middle, that's where it's hard to tell. But I found it interesting. GitHub are kind of aware of this, uh, the presence of these problems and are actively working to remove them. So I guess it's relatively obvious <laughs> that, that people are doing this maybe. I still don't see the benefit, seeing as I'm not sure how many people even really pay attention to, to GitHub stars anymore. But uh, there you go. Don't trust everything you see even if you already weren't. Well, there's even more reason not to, I suppose. On the subject of things you read on the internet that maybe you shouldn't trust, this is an article from Mark Hirschberg over on his Medium called Prompt Engineering Jobs Are a Mirage. We were all promised that the very many jobs that are potentially being replaced by uh, the new generative artificial intelligence, we could all get prompt engineering jobs. And apparently that's not really True, there aren't actually that many prompt engineering jobs. There are jobs that involve prompt engineering or prompt engineering editing, as it seems to be these days increasingly more so. But actual prompt engineering jobs, do they exist? He couldn't find very many, actually. He looked in late September, Upwork had three jobs. And if you took away location, eight jobs. LinkedIn had 13 in the U.S., he specifically says he put prompt engineer as a title and then reiterates what I just said. There are plenty of software engineering jobs that include those words. And then there's a website called Prompt Jobs, has a total of 82 jobs. And most of them seem to be from a long time ago, maybe just cashing in on hype, a little bit like the last article. So <laughs> what aspects of all the new jobs that AI might bring are hype? I suppose that remains to be seen, but so far... Prompt engineering does not seem to be something that companies are jumping on board to employ. What that says about everything else is hard to say exactly, but interesting to see that quite what that will mean moving forward remains to be seen, of course. Revisiting artificial intelligence again. This was sort of reasonably widely reported, but I am quoting here from MIT Technology Review with Melissa Heikler. And also from The Verge, from Amelia David, talking about Nightshade, a new project that is promising to give creators a power to basically poison corrupt information that AI models may be scraping. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the concept of robots.txt, where you can block uh, SEO and website crawlers from scraping your website. And people have been wondering if there's a similar thing you could do with with various LLM, language model scraping tools. And I did see something on Mastodon that was showing you how that could work. But here is another far more combative way where you actually literally throw in... Uh, it's a little bit confusing as to exactly how it works. A lot of people talked about it, but it wasn't clear to me how it works exactly, but it a way for creators to fight back against companies using your work and you use it to poison the training data. So they would think dogs are cats, cars become cows, etc. etc. I don't know if it's actually usable yet. It's something that is in peer review, so maybe it's not 
even usable yet. I'm not 100% sure. But none of these articles really completely describe how it works. Are you actually poisoning the like an image or the text or something like that? Um, or are you adding something on top? Uh, the, the people behind it have actually created similar-ish tools. Before this, they made Glaze, a tool that allows artists to mask their personal style. Yeah, and it worked in a similar way to the way Nightshade is purported to work by changing the pixels of images in subtle ways that are invisible to the human eye but manipulate machine learning models. Now, this is interesting because this reminds me of some things I studied at school, uh, at university, actually, where we looked at uh, creating image filters for tools like Photoshop, et cetera, et cetera. And something that was really mind-blowing to me was that when you start breaking down the composition of images, which are just patterns of pixels for edge detection, you know, you look for patterns, big differences between patterns of numbers, for example. And when you start to realize that all images are just numerical values, you could start to see how this something like this could work. But I wonder if it's so small that a lot of the scraping services will find a way around it very, very quickly. That's always the problem with doing your workout in the open. I suppose it remains to be seen if anyone has any success with this outside of the academic circles it's being trialed in. But I would be interested to, to try it. I suppose, and how much you can make it a part of your workflow. Can you bake it into Photoshop? Can you bake it into other image manipulation tools? That kind of thing, you know, is the process of using it too technical, too complex for many creatives? And if it's just images, great. What about text and, and all sorts of other things? It's harder to add in noise to text that doesn't distract the intended audience as well. So, you know, it's, a, it's not a one-size-fits-all option right now. Now, coming back sort of full circle from the present to the past, this is something I really liked also on The Verge from Amanda Chicago Lewis talking about the people who ruined the internet. And this is her attending a, an event in Florida along with a, an alligator, <laughs> not hers, at the actually actual event, of people involved in search engine optimization. And, you know, people basically blame them for ruining the internet in the first place. The interesting thing that I found with this was how many of them had been involved in the industry for so long. And also uh, how many of them don't, not really experiencing as lucrative work as they used to either. But for the ones that have been involved in it for a while, they sort of have made enough already that they don't care. Uh, versus those probably thinking about getting into SEO right now that may not be um, viable anymore. But in the past, it was more viable and was quite lucrative, in fact. And now I wonder with these constantly moving goalposts, how how these people really keep up with it and how they really continue to command the sorts of fees and status reported in the articles that they used to be able to do. And it seems that these days that a lot of them are just giving basic advice rather than kind of doing the sort of black magic that people uh, think they always used to do. And they definitely, even themselves, say that now their work has become less useful and less valuable and, and harder for them with this proliferation of just, I mean, in the future, machine-generated, but at the moment, just human-machine-generated crap that pollutes content on the internet. 
some nobody doing the right thing at any scale could really compete with someone just abusing a system, I suppose, is the argument there. So I mean, no matter what you think of them, spare a thought for them because they're suffering from the same problems many of us are now. And of course, in the SEO world, there were people who were trying to do good things as well, you know, get uh, the search results for well-meaning companies and projects surfaced, not just yet another kind of clickbait article. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if people necessarily differentiated from that. But I found it interesting because it really reminded me of when I first started on the internet myself and what the world used to be like and how it used to be kind of so much simpler. And then in the past 10 years or so, changes from Microsoft and Google have really thrown a spanner in the works of how we all used to think we could get content discovered. And now no one's really sure anymore, in all honesty. And the advice you get, especially from Google, who still remain the most important player, of course, uh, it's not very clear. They kind of direct you to resources that are very vague. And, and there's a lot of actual discussion in the article about the, inter, the, the, the writer speaks to some people who work at Google, especially who say, oh, we have lots of documentation. We've had have more than ever, but they don't ever, none of that documentation ever really goes into the specifics about what you're actually supposed to do. And I guess the reason is that Google knows as well that if they did, then if everybody knows how to, <laughs> if game a system is right, but then no, it doesn't really solve the problem. I don't know, but uh, it's it's a challenge for everybody in some respects because if the rules aren't clear, then how do people play the game? But some people can play the game better than others. So there obviously are rules that they've figured out how to game, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that makes sense at all. But anyway, I found it very interesting just to to see the pain and the effort that people we easily criticize have to go through now to to do their work too and many of them were trying to help us and uh, many of us do similar things on a smaller scale to try and get our work noticed and does it matter anymore i suppose is is the is the question to ask who whoever you are so yeah have a read at the very least just hear about the alligator that was just wandering around the event it is florida after all Wrapping up with two articles, both from Wired. I told you there was a lot of interesting articles on Wired around advertising effectively. YouTube is cracking down on ad blockers. I actually do use an ad blocker. I don't think I ever noticed it blocking ads on YouTube. I'm not 100% sure. And it has caused a lot of people to uninstall ad blockers because they're basically saying if you're using an ad blocker, you will be blocked from using YouTube. I don't exactly know how they can enforce that, but maybe maybe they've got ways of sniffing identities of browsers and things like that. It kind of worries you in some way because how private do you have to be for them to not be able to figure out that you're the same person using a browser in different ways? That kind of thing is, is concerning in itself. And it's interesting because... I'm obviously a person who benefits from ad-supported media and there's always this increasing issue now where I don't like ad-supported media myself, but I benefit from it. Where do I stand on this? Uh, advertising has gone too far. The last uh, topic I just covered sort of uh, is a summary of that as well and it's probably going to get worse. And what's the, what's the alternative? Everybody asking you to pay the price of a coffee each month to get 
free content without advertising, that's also not sustainable. So it's really a problem at the moment of knowing exactly how to get people to pay for content and sort of forcing people into it also isn't really a good way either. Or is it? To be honest with you, I don't know because I would like to get paid for the videos I make. Do I think that YouTube doing this is a good idea? I don't really know myself. I'd love to hear from you actually. How would you like to pay for content? And how much do you think getting people to pay for content should be a carrot versus a stick? Head on over to christiangilla.com where you can see on the front page my contact details because I would really like to hear from you. And you can also post comments if you're on the newsletter version on the Substack post as well. And finally, in this avenue, Facebook has finally put a price on privacy mostly forced out by uh, EU regulation. Uh, Meta is about to roll out an ad-free subscription on Instagram of Facebook. $10 a month. It doesn't seem terrible, and this is just in Europe. I've been thinking about ideas around this space for some time, actually, and, and when this would happen, and I was never really sure what it would be. $10 doesn't seem terrible in some respects. It sort of, I sort of wonder how much it will affect people using it and, and then equally how it will affect your usage of meta services. Them having no tracking, does that mean the content will get worse or better for you? It's very hard to know. They've been an interesting experiment to see, actually. So if you are in the European Union, Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein or Switzerland at some point in November and you get offered, have a look. Sign up, see what happens. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see. I, maybe I should try it myself for a couple of months to see how it improves or ruins my meta experience. And that was my articles for the week. Let's jump in with an interview with Loris of Siskig. Today I'm joined by Loris. Loris did you that, yeah, that looks good. <laughs> okay, it sounds close enough. My name is much easier most of the time. From Sysdig, security tools for containers, Kubernetes, and cloud. This is definitely a topic that has been a big subject at KubeCon the past couple of years, maybe. But Sysdig's been around a little bit longer than I think than some of the the current wave of container security tools. So let's maybe start with a little bit of Sysdig's origin story and how you got to today. Yeah, we have been around. Sysdig is definitely one of the companies that sort of, you know, the precursors of security and visibility in the cloud space and in particular with uh, Kubernetes. The company at this point is almost uh, uh, 10 years old. Oh. And I started the company with a background in uh, open source Mm -hmm. and in particular in open source packet capture. So my prior company was called Case Technologies and I ran it between 2005 and 2010. And it was the company behind a pretty well-known open source network analyzer called Wireshark. Oh yeah. Wireshark is used by pretty much anybody that has anything to do with, with, with network packets and Wireshark and in particular, you know, the packet capture components of Wireshark 
America, where I, I have a long history with that because I started working on those uh, while I was a student in Italy, mm-hmm. in my university in Italy. And then Wireshark would pick up the package capture library I built and Wireshark uh, became uh, uh, extremely popular. We built a company around that and um, we were acquired in 2010. I went to work for the company who acquired us and I quickly realized that, I mean, we were doing packets and packet capture and visibility and security uh, by using essentially the, you know, like the spam port of the router and the communications on the network as the source of truth. Mm-hmm. During those years, uh, we used to say packets never lie. Uh, but uh, the world was changing and uh, actually packets were starting lying a little yeah. bit because cloud was uh, starting to explode you know aws was becoming a thing we, we were talking about uh, 2010 2011 and in the cloud you're renting instances but you don't have the physical network anymore where you can tap you know to, co- to collect your information and then you know a little past company called dot cloud was renamed into docker and the container yep. revolution was starting and uh, there are people that are packing hundreds of containers in a single machine and uh, if you're sitting you know on a router or tapping into the network wire you are missing a lot at that point you know because there's this density of entities that are communicating very often without leaving a trace on the network and uh, originally the impetus behind this was okay the world is changing a new stack is being defined this stack is uh, extremely powerful it has to do with cloud with microservices with containers and so on how do we make sure that uh, we as a as a community as an open source community initially we offer the same level of visibility that was available in the legacy data mm-hmm. center and that's how sysdic started essentially can I, can I just like uh, my timelines around the pop, the the increasing popularity of containers around Docker basically was about two thousand and sort of fourteen fifteen I guess yeah two thousand and thirteen is when Docker essentially became a thing okay. Kubernetes I think the first release was two thousand and fourteen yeah. if I remember well yeah. something like that and then KubeCon started becoming really popular in two thousand and fifteen two thousand and sixteen yeah so was was Sysdig there at day zero or, or did Sysdig do something yeah. else before <laughs> uh, no so uh, no pretty much. We started the company around the same time, recognizing, I mean, at that point, it was uh, an absolute gamble because it was really, really early days. We essentially participated to the, to the very early days and it was, it was fun because you really had to, to define what, what a security stack would be, what data collection would be, what a monitoring stack would be for the for these architectures, you know. So, as the broader Kubernetes community was uh, operating and iterating on uh, on Kubernetes and and the other components uh, like Prometheus and so on, very quickly, uh, we were participating by by trying to define what does it mean, you know, what what does it even mean to 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 secure these entities? What is the relationship with the cloud? How do you interface these, you know, with with other cloud services? How do you use labels for? How do you do your your low level instrumentation and all of these kind of problems that now you know there's sort of a standard to solve yeah. these problems, but but we yeah. had to invent it from a blank sheet of paper. 
So let's actually dig into a little bit before we go into the products that Cystic has, and especially some of the open source groups as well. Let's actually maybe dig into a little bit of what what security means in the container space. You've talked about something like Wireshot, which is looking at packets, but that's, that's not the end of it, is it, containers these days? There's a, there's a wider security discussion with things like software security, supply chain, et cetera, et cetera, that isn't just about packets, kind of as you said. So what's the, what's the big picture around security in containers? All right, so the big picture. As I was saying uh, about packets, we quickly realized that uh, uh, I mean, it's, th it's stuff that is still important, understanding what's happening on the network, but largely, especially for like the, the purposes of runtime security, they were not the right uh, data source. I would say when we look at modern infrastructures, I would say the areas that are architecturally extremely relevant, including for security are number one, the the fact that we're relying more and more on automated pipelines to build our software, that's so-called, you know, CICD. And number two is the increased decomposition of the software that we run into, into services and the automatic orchestration of these services. Architectural trend number one, the one of CICD, has created a lot of opportunities to bolt security earlier in the process of creating software and tying more the security team and the security features uh, into what developers do. Right, so the so-called shiftless security, where uh, we, you know, we go into the ability to scan images, to do supply chain, uh, to go even maybe further left into code. Infrastructure is called security, in fact, because you know our infrastructures are more and more universally defined as as pieces of code declared uh, in in one of uh, a handful of languages that you can that you can use, CloudFormation, Terraform, and so on. They are put in a Git repository, so security tools like for example sysd can go to this git repository and scan this these infrastructure definitions for compliance uh, for privileges for all of this kind of stuff and you know security that, that shifts maybe even even left going like into code as this code is built and being able to block the, the the release or, or 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 even building you know pieces of code depending on their security profile and so on so security more and more becomes becomes an inter integral part of the CI/CD pipeline and becomes you know it's possible to bridge essentially you know security with traditional development microservices on the other hand uh, the the big result is decomposition of software into small pieces that talk through APIs and the fact that these different components of the software are more and more you know orchestrated and automated this means this creates fantastic operational advantages but also has two implications one is that things are moving very very quickly and so you know when security in the past was maybe a matter of days now it's a matter of minutes very often seconds you know containers can really go up and down very quickly the other the other implication is 
there's a lot of little modules. So, you know, we don't have a monolith anymore. We don't have pets anymore. We have, we have not, not even kettles, we have locusts, you know, they're so small and they, and they, and, and they, and they move so quickly. So how, how do you even just understand what they're doing is, is a problem that is not completely trivial to solve. Yeah. I, I'm really interested to know how, like, we've kind of gone back over it a little bit again, but so, for example, you know, your probably your most popular open source project these days is Falco, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, as far as I'm aware, is largely, I just want to double check, because I've looked at it from a very particular Fal- perspective. Falco is uh, your security camera for modern cloud-based contain- container-based infrastructure. Yeah. You, de- you deploy it, you deploy it uh, on the nodes, but uh, it, it's actually being able to see inside containers that's yeah. one of the things that CISIG innovated uh, yeah, okay. on that, in the early kind of days. Getting to. Yeah. And and Falco con- collects all of the signals that are based on system calls as as a bunch of community curated ah, policies and rules. And is okay. able to tell you, hey, on this container, somebody has just executed you know a shell and is trying to run commands. Right. Okay. Or somebody's yeah. just modified a binary file in the Redis container. Or I mean there there's tens and tens and tens of yeah. these of, of these rules, you know? I think that's and, that's kind of where, where I was interested because I've only experimented with it from the the kind of the software bill of materials perspective, which mm-hmm, I'm guessing mm-hmm. is probably a more recent addition. And that's mm-hmm. where I was kind of wondering, what was Falco doing before if it's been around so long? And so it was actually doing something much more interesting, which I guess leads into the whole Sysdig Secure, Sysdig Monitor platform you have. Exactly. It was, Falco yeah, is the core of our yeah. runtime security products, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. it's something that can efficiently sit everywhere in your, in your infrastructure, yeah. receive multiple signals, process them very quickly at the edge, generate insights that are, that are then collected in a central place to generate, to create, you know, indicators of, of, of attack and indi- indicators yeah. of compromise. It, it's actually interesting because that starts to really show the, the Wireshark heritage there. <laughs> Very much so. So now, now you, now you, you, you see why I started talking about, you know, yeah. pre- Precis dig and talking about yeah. Wireshark because very much, you know, n- nothing is ever invented from scratch, right? So the inspiration, the original inspiration of Sysdig, especially with the open source that we do at Sysdig is, okay, you know, packets are challenging, but what can we use essentially to, to get yeah. something that is similar in terms of properties? And we created originally a, a, a system, a, a set of tools that are able to collect system calls from uh, running cloud infrastructure. System calls are every call that, uh, that, that the process running inside a container or inside a physical yeah. host or inside a virtual machine does to the operating system. Yeah. So opening or closing a file is a system call, yeah, creating, deleting files, of course, reading, reading and writing, uh, establishing network connections, inter-process communications, executing commands, running processes, all of this stuff is system calls. And the, the beauty of system calls is that we're able to sit in the operating system, in the kernel of the operating system, and then every container for us is we are able to see inside essentially because every container generates system calls that go through the operating system. So the collection nowadays done through a, a facility called EBPF in the yeah, kernel of the operating system. Yeah, I was, I was starting to system. wonder that if, if that's what Falco was using. Or yeah. If, 
Yeah. Very okay. much so. And, okay. and it becomes similar to the old spam port of the router. You know, instead of sitting on the router and looking at the packets that go through the network, it's we sit inside the operating the system yeah. and we look yeah. at the system calls. And yeah. this is a model that works very well. If you look at security, especially the ability to collect information for the applications that are running in modern cloud infrastructures, especially in containers. Originally, everybody that was offering solutions was saying, well, containers are like mini hosts. So let's mm. read them like hosts and let's install something, a daemon or a library inside each of the containers. That didn't scale at all. Wave number two was, okay, you know, Kubernetes introduced the, cons in, in the concept of sidecar for a pod. So if we need to do security, if we need to do monitoring, if, if we need to do log collection, we can put a sidecar inside the pod and, yep. and we can collect the data that way. That didn't work as well because you still have, you know, you have all, for all of your containers that are now you're, you need to run inside the same pod, another six other containers just to, for data collection. So the SysDig model was, uh, forget about that. You sit underneath, you sit in the kernel of the, of, of the operating system and you're able to see all of these signals. At that point, you only have one point of instrumentation and you can run 500 containers in a machine. You still mm. collect the stuff only in one single place and you have only one Falco per machine. And that's what Falco brought to the community, essentially, to the industry, a vision on how to do essential instrumentation for very verbose infrastructures mm. made of microservices that are made of little containers in a way that doesn't require you to deploy 5 million things everywhere because you can sit in the kernel and, that's, and you have a demo set in Kubernetes and that's the only yep. thing that you need to do. What, I mean, eBPF as a, as a more adopted standard is relatively new. So was, was Falco using something else before? Or yes. was it a trailblazer um, there as well? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, the first incarnation of uh, instrumentation for Falco and also for, for uh, commercial SysDig was uh, kernel modules. Okay. It was still okay. an, an open source approach, but it was based on essentially extending the kernel through, through kernel modules, like similar yeah. to a device driver. Yeah. EBPF yeah. brought... Uh, a beautiful innovation there by by allowing people to execute uh, stuff in the operating system kernel in a way that is based on a virtual machine. So it's uh, safe and validated. So the beauty of VBPF compared to using kernel modules is that you're not running arbitrary C code in the kernel of your operating system, but you're running a virtual machine that is sandboxed, validated, verified, and so on. So as soon as eBPF was available, we immediately embraced it in 2017, 2018, and we created by the time something that was radically complex as a BPF script, you know? At the yeah. time, eBPF was used to run 10 line of code scripts in the kernel of the operating system. We created a collection system that was 10,000 lines of code and everybody thought we were crazy. And still now, you know, the, the Falco eBPF module is one of the most sophisticated piece of eBPF, but we proved that eBPF could be used for this kind of production grade, sophisticated, advanced use cases. It's, it's also strange because there's a lot of other companies and projects that talk about eBPF a lot. And you don't mention yeah. it very much at all, <laughs> which is yeah. kind of interesting. <laughs> An interesting yeah. approach, maybe. But it's, 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 it's always a debate. I yeah. mean, personally, so a couple of things. One is I, 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 I 
talked about this at a conference few few months ago. There's there's a, a little bit of Fed uh, about yeah, TBPF, true. and yeah. there's now the tendency from industry players to create the equivalence EBPF equal perfect instrumentation. You know, I'm my product is based on EBPF. And therefore, yep. <laughs> I am modern. I am modern, and I am perfect. As yeah. I was mentioning, eBPF is a virtual machine. It's like Java or .NET, you know, or something like that. So, you know, it's it's almost like saying I write Java software, and therefore my software is perfect. It's yeah, it, okay, it, this yeah. is just what runs your yeah. programs, you know. And yeah. then you still need to you need to write something useful and something yeah. that does its job, and hopefully does it well, you know. So. I've always been a little bit skeptical, probably because we, we got into this kind of stuff so early about companies that, that just make make a flag out of out of this, you know, because and, and I very much prefer even with Falco to talk about the merits, what it mm-hmm. does and how it does and why it's useful rather than rather than the tools that it uses, you know, because yep. That, yep. that's not the final goal. No. Sorry sure. about the rent. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 it's just totally fine, you know. I've had other EBPF people on the other side, so... <laughs> so <let's, laughs> and don't take me from... By the way, I've been involved with EBPF. No, I can see, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. With EBPF when it was still called BPF. EBPF yes, stands for yes, yes, Enhanced yes. Perket Plate Filter. Yes, I was working on BPF and, and I wrote the first just-in-time compiler for BPF in 2000. Just like uh, containers, nothing new, actually. So, so 20, <laughs> 20 plus years ago, you know, so I love the yeah. technology still being yeah. one of my... One of my oh, for sure. I mean, Pas- if you do- passions, but but it's yeah. a technology, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay. So moving into a little bit of Sysdigs platform as a whole, I just wanted to touch on one of the other uh, open source kind of standards that you adhere to, which is much more recent and really starts to bring the security into the into the, I guess, into the enterprise world, but also into. The regulatory world, and this is the kind of whole policy idea. And so, in your case, it's now. I want to double check OPA. I'm assuming it's open yeah. policy. Open policy agent. Yeah, that's what I thought. I just want to double check because it's not on your web page. <laughs> so I just want to double check what it actually stood for. So the open policy agent, and this in in theory allows people to say, you know, for our images, for our containers. There going to be these licenses. There has to be this certain level of vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. There has to be X, Y, Z, and anything that's in violation of that can't run. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, personally, I actually feel like I don't know who's going to be first, the European Union or somebody else, but that something like the the whole software bill of materials and the kind of work around policy around infrastructure as code is going to be regulated fairly soon ish. In, mm-hmm. in in government terms anyway. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so the fact that this is now moving into something companies can offer to businesses is definitely uh, it's it's definitely a, a selling point that is going to be more important in the next few years. Uh, and you're using that, and I think this leads into. I feel like because uh, you've you've generated your own um, an acronym here, CNAP, the mm-hmm. Cloud Native Application Protection Platform. And I'm guessing this leverages a lot of these components we've been talking about into that that window, that viewpoint for businesses and business owners to see what is happening 
basically. Yeah, and <laughs> Synap, I want to clarify, is not a CISDIG acronym. It's okay. more like an in industry-wide. It's actually Garner, you know, like okay. the, 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 the analyst company that has created this, uh, this, this acronym to define essentially, you know, what a platform, a modern platform for cloud security looks like. And one thing about cloud security is, well, uh, cloud is cool and powerful, but also complex. And so cloud security as well is, tends to be a, a complex, multifaceted area. And with uh, the acronym Synap, Garner is sort of defining a little bit what what a, a tool, a solution that, that offers this kind of security looks like and what kind of features are, are required there. And also help the users essentially orient themselves in, in understanding and figuring out what are the big, the big areas, the big blocks that need to be, that need to be covered when securing a modern cloud infrastructure. And this, of course, includes uh, several areas. Uh, uh, it includes uh, vulnerability management and the ability to understand if uh, your software, your components, your infrastructure are, are, are secure, includes, uh, you know, like compliance and the ability to validate that your software and your infra infrastructure, when it runs, it adheres to specific policies. And as you were mentioning, this is important not only for the actual security of your software, but because it's in, in, in a global uh, environment, it's, it's very important to ensure that, uh, your, that the software that you bring to your users respects the, the different, uh, you know, policy and government's mandates of, uh, of the different countries and continents. But another important, very important area of uh, cloud security and of a CNET platform is uh, the so-called uh, runtime security, uh, because you can be as careful and as disciplined as you want in detecting your vulnerabilities early on and applying your policies and automate, you know, and blocking software that, as you were mentioning before, that doesn't meet specific policies. But then in the end, your software is running, is running in uh, adverse environments with attackers coming from all over the world. So the ability to detect threats at runtime, both on the workload side, so your containers and instances and virtual machines and so on. And on the cloud side is a very important requisite. From the CNAP point of view, what the unique perspective that SysD brings is bringing the different souls of a CNAP platform. So like the vulnerability management, the compliance one and the runtime one together and tying them in a way that puts runtime as the centerpiece and makes everything better by using signals that are coming from runtime. What do I mean? I mean that very often, you know, you scan your, your software for vulnerabilities and you find that uh, your software has maybe hundreds of vulnerabilities and, and maybe you tell your developers or you even prevent your developers from releasing their software because it has so many vulnerabilities. But are they actually used? Are they actually loaded in memory? Are they part of a software that, that, that is executed? Is this, is this software 
in a critical environment or is it just yeah. in a hidden a build test, test environment yeah. or build environment that doesn't really matter you know yeah. these are all important <laughs> questions that if you're able to answer you can make life so much better for everybody and you can make software much more secure because you allow the teams to prioritize on what's really important that is the sysdic perspective on a CNAP platform that's actually it's actually really interesting because I've definitely spoken to companies on the two the two sides of what you offer the the container security scanning and the observability the runtime but you're actually offering both and making yes. those more of those connections there's a couple of companies that do it in their own way but that offering those connections between the two and filtering out a lot of the things that may not be necessary. I really like what you say about that. You know, there may be dependencies that are part of a build chain that it doesn't yeah. actually matter if it's out of date or whatever, because no one outside of the internal team is really using it anyway. I mean, yeah, one could argue that that is still a potential vulnerability, but yeah, you, you it gives you a bit more insight into the actual state of things, not just, oh, big red list of problems with no real context. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. these companies that you mentioned, you know, are relatively new to this, where CISDIC has been working yeah, on exactly. this for years <laughs> now, you know. And yeah. a little bit like we were talking about defining the Kubernetes security stack. This is another thing that we define for the industry. And of course, we're moving very fast. So, for example, we do this now, like for user entitlement and privileges, you know. And so we're yeah. able to look at users that are running in the cloud and what are they doing and what privileges do they actually need to do what they're yep. doing and they were yep. able to reconcile this with how have they been configured you know and we've yeah. discovered for example that like 95 percent of uh, of the privileges that are given to cloud users that users that operate on cloud infrastructures are not used you know so we're able to close the loop and and tell our customers okay you know this user needs only like one percent of what what's been granted and you can make it this much more airtight by by reducing so th there's many ways we're looking at what thing looks like at runtime and they were able to feed it back to configuration yeah. and to being able to to remove gaps and and security issues by by yeah. doing that and just finally i'd like to touch on the future so i see you you do have this cystic sage which i got excited for a second and wondering if it was you looking at like generative AI models that were running in containers and telling people the sources of things, but no, it's it's the the more the other approach. To, but it's actually interesting in itself. You know, we talked about um, people having access to all this information, but what does it really mean to them? And the ability to to literally talk to that data set to find out the answers in a more conversational way how, how have you found have people been using it or is it still very in early stages or we are in early stages by the way sage is a little bit my my baby you know and it's essentially the being able to merge a chat gpt like modern large language model with the ultra rich and multi-domain data set that is uh, at the core of a platform like like sysdig and sysdig secure and there are some things in cloud security for example cloud security based on what i told you is inherently multi-domain right so there are some really interesting challenges in like how do we actually make an llm effectively operate in such a complex domain and make it possible for an llm to to jump from one domain to the other domain yeah. and then come back and, and and actually help find the needle in the in the high stack yeah so 
um, Sage is, is, is designed to be as close as possible to a human assistant that has deep expertise in cloud security and uh, can give superpowers to our users because uh, uh, it knows our product very well. It knows the yeah. field extremely well and it's able to sift through all of this data together with the user and find something that uh, maybe the user wouldn't find or it would find it, uh, take a, lo- a, a lot of time and then just help the user iterate uh, yep. on these and, and really understand quickly what's happening and judge uh, yep. if what's happening is uh, okay, bad, or good, you know? Then, then finally, if you have just a couple more minutes, you've you and Sysdig have been in the space for longer than many in the space. What's mm-hmm. what's next? What is next for for the company? What is next for the industry? Do you think that you will keep on top of? I think that the industry is clearly at a time where uh, you know, like, there's a clarification on what exactly means to to do cloud security and sort of a convergence of different features, right? So CSD comes a little bit more from the runtime slash container point of view, but we have very quickly increased the functionality in our in our platform to cover very well all of the areas that have to do with like cloud security and posture management and vulnerability management uh, and uh, everything that is that is more like a cloud. And the thing that, as I was mentioning before with uh, our news, so the ability to understand what's, what's used at, at runtime, the future for this industry is going from a bunch of uh, vertical solutions that are packaged together into a platform to something that is really cohesive, coherent, and uh, being able to offer uh, a powerful uh, experience to the user that uh, really uh, allows the users to operate in this complex multi-domain world. And this is why, for example, I'm so excited about LLMs because I think that they are part on on, on this equation and they're part of being able to tie things together, prioritize better and uh, respond faster to to threads in an an environment that by definition uh, puts multiple domains together. Fantastic. Great to have you. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Loris from Syskig. I did too. And I've got plenty more in the can to get out over the next few months. So I hope you enjoyed those interviews. If you do enjoy those interviews, please head on over to wherever you are listening and give me a review. Just even some stars would be great, but a comment would be even better. That would be very, very helpful right now as I try to build the show up a bit more. I don't have a ton to update you on because I have been away. I'm working on NaNoWriMo this month again, National Novel Writing Month for 2023. I'm pretty much well in progress there. I'm also working on some game competitions and some other nonfiction books. So I'm working on lots of big projects right now. Hence, I don't have too many small ones. And I'll be at Web Summit in Lisbon next week if you happen to be there and would like to have an interview or a conversation. So There won't be too much more in between now and the next episode either because of that. So I'm just going to wrap up and thank you very much for joining me and take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com. 
where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.